Praised be Jesus Christ. Peace be with you. Today, Saturday of the third week in Lent, and uh, we are on the verge of Laetare Sunday, uh, the fourth Sunday in Lent. Laetare, of course, meaning uh, rejoice, the Sunday of rejoicing. This is one of the two Sundays in the year when you'll see your priest wearing rose vestments, and um, in the midst of the the solemnity of this Lenten season, the, uh, the austerity of Lent, we're going to, for one Sunday, have flowers again on the altar, and we will use the organ, if your church has an organ, or um, other instruments, you'll have instrumental music, the Gloria is sung again. So it's a little, a little uh, foretaste of Easter, <laughs> it's a little moment of encouragement, a moment of, uh, of rejoicing that the church gives us about halfway through the season of Lent. On Thursday of this last week, uh, was re- that was really the 20th day of the 40 days, you know, if you count 40 days of Lent, um, basically from Ash Wednesday until Wednesday of Holy Week, so you don't count the Sundays and you don't count the sacred Easter Triduum, which is kind of its own little mini season. So if you count from Ash Wednesday to Wednesday of Holy Week without Sundays, it's 40 days. And this last Thursday was the 20th day. So we're on, I guess, day 22 now (laughs) of Lent. And um, anyway, yeah, so we're about halfway through, about halfway through. And uh, what's needed now is perseverance. What's needed is recommitment, you know, to, uh, to our Lenten disciplines and practices, a renewal of our resolve to just continue along the road uh, and, and keep our eyes fixed on the goal, you know, and persevere. So that's why the church gives us this wonderful Sunday of Laetare, uh, the fourth Sunday of Lent, uh, to encourage us to renew our resolve, to renew our strength, and to remind us of the Easter joy that we're striving toward. So I hope you get to keep this Sunday with uh, great festivity, (laughs) somehow, that you'll get to rejoice and celebrate a bit, and uh, then, yeah, just get back, get back on the road. Uh, So I'm here walking around in my own backyard uh, of the rectory here in Eugene, and I have to keep this podcast real real tight today. I've got to keep it within an hour because it's just after 9 o'clock, and I've got a Zoom call at 10 uh, I've got a meeting from 10 to 12, which is um, a board meeting for an organization that my pastor is involved with, and they plan uh, retreats once or twice a year, and uh, it's kind of a healing ministry. They're women's retreats, so um, we're just going to be, I guess, planning for the next one today. So. Uh, part of the pastoral year, you know, is uh, <laughs> whatever your pastor does, you do with him, which is good. So I'm glad I'll get the opportunity to just kind of experience this. So we're going to have that meeting. And then uh, let's see, I have another Zoom meeting at 1, which is a vocations panel with uh, Father Jeff Irvin, our vocation director. And that's going to be recorded. Um, I think I'm the only seminarian on it. Father Jeff will be on there as a priest, and then there's various religious from around the diocese. I think we got one of the Carmelite sisters on. There's a Benedictine, young Benedictine monk from Mount Angel, and um, a few others who are involved in this as well. So the point is um, for us to kind of share our, our vocation, story, vocation stories <laughs> real quickly and then answer some questions. And uh, I'm not exactly sure what the format will be. I don't know if there's going to be an interviewer or how exactly they're going to do it, but um, we're going to produce this recorded vocations panel and then I think it'll be shared and maybe shown at Catholic schools or shared out somehow among the diocese. I don't know what they're going to do with it, but (laughs) I'll be doing that. Um, And then, let's see, we got, of course, confessions later and the vigil mass. I'll be singing for the vigil mass. The the, uh, Latin Gregorian propers for Laetare Sunday are so beautiful. 
In fact, the music that you will have heard at the beginning of this podcast is the introit, the entrance chant for Laetare Sunday, Rejoice Jerusalem. Uh, so I've been uh, practicing that this week, uh, which is a joy. And let's see what else. And then tonight I have another Zoom meeting <laughs> with one of the young men in my RCIA class who has, he's missed a few classes. We're trying to get him caught up so he can uh, enter into the church at, at Easter. Well, actually, he's already, technically he's already in the church. He's baptized Catholic, but he's one of a handful of people we have in the program this year who are adults who were baptized, but just never really catechized. Um, he's never received the other sacraments. Uh, and so he's, he's kind of a special case. So he'll be receiving uh, confirmation and I think his his first Holy Communion. So, but he still needs to kind of go through the whole process with everybody else and get up to speed on what the church teaches. <laughs> and so, um, yeah, I think he's he's missed some classes. He's been watching the videos. We use this program called Symbolon, which uh, is very well done. It's put out by the Augustine Institute, and uh, a benefit of it is that it's it's available through formed.org which our parish subscribes to. Yours probably does too. Um, you can go on to formed.org and you can find lots of great Catholic content. And it's available to you for free if your parish subscribes. So um, the benefit is if people in our RCA program miss a class, at least the way I've been handling it, is I have them go on to formed. They can log on. They can watch that session. They can watch that video from Symbolon. And then we just have a meeting and kind of do a little q and I answer their questions and... When I'm satisfied that they really understand it, then you know they're they, they've uh, they've essentially made up the class. So um, that's what we're going to do tonight. We've got to get through about three sessions that he missed. Hopefully, we'll knock him out this evening. So busy day uh, as always. I don't get to go out for my uh, my long walk today. I have to satisfy myself with just walking in circles in the backyard. <laughs> But at least it's it's a beautiful day. Man, yesterday was just stunning. It was like 60 degrees here, sunny. I was sitting out here for a while talking on the phone with a friend. And this morning, um, yeah, I was up early and went for a run in on the, on the school track. Um, our rectory here adjoins the parish school. And so I can just go out of the backyard, go, go through our little gate and be right on the schoolyard. So I went for a run on the track this morning and... It was just in the first few minutes of dawn. And so as I, when I went out there, the grass was all frosty and slippery. And uh, you could see just, yeah, the coating of frost on everything. And then a couple of laps in, um, the sun really began to break over the school buildings. And it was just so stunning. You see the sun reflecting off of the frost and gradually the ice receding. And it was, the air was cold, but it was bright and beautiful. And now I'm out here and it's still, it's, it's warming up. It's still a bit cool, but um, the sun is warm and the day is stunning and the birds are singing. Let me see, what else do I have to share about myself this week? Um, Thursday, a couple, two days ago now, my pastor was gone for the day in Portland. And so that, it was kind of a fun day because... Uh, Basically, everything he would have done, I did that day. <laughs> of course, well, we couldn't have Mass, but um, let's see. We have all-day adoration on Thursdays, so I got to expose the Blessed Sacrament in the morning and then repose the Blessed Sacrament at night. And then instead of our normal morning Mass, we had a morning prayer service, which I led and got to preach and then went over to teach at the school. <laughs> and uh, it, was, it was pretty fun. It was a good day uh, in that respect. And you could... Uh, I posted the reflection, the homily from that morning up on my podcast feed. So if you want to go back, you can find that as well. Um, what else? Yeah, te te teaching this week was, was fun. Um, I had the B group. And it's so striking the difference between these two classes, these two seventh grade classes. The A group, I think I've mentioned before, they're so engaged. Like, they're just really on the ball each time I've been with them so far has been just so delightful. <laughs> Not that the B group isn't a delight, but it's hard. It's like much harder <laughs> getting them to engage, like getting answers out of them. Um, yeah, just getting them, getting them into the, 
I don't know, getting into the lesson is more difficult. I don't know if it's just because it's earlier, because uh, I see them at 9.20, and I see the A group at 11.40. So maybe just because it's earlier in the day, or just their personalities, I don't know, or a mix somehow of, of both. So I had the B group this week, and uh, the teacher had given me some strategies for just like engaging them more and like some just some little tips that she uses and uh, one she had mentioned was just uh, kind of cold calling on some students at the beginning and letting them know you're gonna do it and because over the course of a lesson typically the um, difficulty of your questions increases uh, you know and so that's just natural like the the questions at the beginning are very easier than later on as you kind of are grappling more with complex topics and so at the beginning, if you can just kind of throw out some softballs and call on the people who are less likely to participate, who are more disengaged, um, that can be a good way of just kind of getting them into the loop and getting people to wake up and <laughs> pay attention. So I did that this week. It worked okay. Um, and uh, yeah, I mean, I think it was, it was a good technique. But uh, it was pretty, fu- pretty funny. At one point in the lesson, I was teaching about the parable of the lamp. You know, and we were talking about faith, and I was trying to get them to give me a definition of faith, you know, and just talk about well, what is faith. Oh, we weren't, we weren't really making a lot of progress. And so <laughs> I was, uh, I noticed there was this basketball on the ground. And so I said, look, um, do you need faith to believe that this, that this basketball is going to bounce? <laughs> I picked it up and bounced it. And it was so funny. Half the boys in the class were like, oh, like they lost their minds. <laughs> it was great. So then, then things kind of picked up speed, you know, after the basketball. <laughs> it was funny. So uh, that was good, yeah. This next set of less par- lessons on the parables will be on the parable of the mustard seed uh, slash the seed that grows itself, the seed that grows um, kind of hid- hiddenly <laughs> that we get in Mark's gospel. Interesting parable because it's not in the other synoptics. Matthew and Luke all have the mustard seed one, but only Mark has this one about the farmer who goes out and sows a seed and then it grows night and day. Um, whether he's sleeping or working, whatever the farmer's doing, the seed is still just growing, which is such a great, just, a, it's just encouraging and it's a great lesson for us in our spiritual lives. And uh, I, I love how St. Mark says, uh, it, yeah, it continues to grow and to rise up. First the blade, then the ear, and then the, and then the full fruit or something like that. And so, yeah, we just see how um, the word of God that's sown in us, it grows by stages. And it, we just, it just continues, um, yeah, progressively coming about in us. The Lord is the great gardener, the great husbandsman, the farmer who sows his seeds. And then um, whether, he, <laughs> whether we're conscious of his action or not, whether he seems to be working with us or maybe we think he's absent, but the seed is still growing. It's still growing as long as we take care to be good soil. So I'm looking forward to that. But yeah, it's just, it's a delight to teach these seventh graders and I'm beginning to get to know them, recognize their faces and know their names. And I'm glad I'll get to be with them um, till the end of the school year, a few more months. So should be good. And then, yeah, teaching the RCA is going great. We're wrapping up, of course. We'll be, um, our, our elect will be received into the church at Easter. So we've got really two more classes, two more Sunday breakout sessions, um, counting the one tomorrow. And then that's it. We'll have our rehearsal. And then Easter Vigil will be, the majority of them will come in. A few will be received later. We've got two who are working on marriage stuff um, for prior marriages, including, unfortunately for me, the one guy who um, I'm sponsoring. So hopefully we'll get him in over the summer or something, depending on how the whole annulment situation shakes out, which, as we know, it can really drag on. But... Um, we'll see how it goes. But most of our people will be received in at Easter. And yeah, that's pretty much the news for me. Oh, our school, O'Hara School, was featured in the news <laughs> this week, which was a, a great boost for all of us. Um, it's on KVAL. I think it was on Monday, the local news station. And um, they came and did a, an exclusive piece about the school because, you know, we've been open for 
We've been open for full in-person learning for all grades since January, or maybe since, it was like late January or the very beginning of February. But we've been open in person, in a, at least in a limited way, since September. I mean, the whole school year. Um, the, they've really been working hard to, to do the maximum they could safely within the law. And so I remember in the fall, like they had, I think K through three, were able to be there and then the upper grades they like rotated and they had one or two days in the school a week per grade or something um, and now they're 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 fully open they still have distance learning for those parents who choose it you know um, so in every class there's a few kids who are still zooming um, so it's a hybrid thing but the majority are back they've been getting another student back pretty much every week so they're trickling back in and most are there and uh the local public school district, some of their officials came over this week to, uh, to learn from our school administrators what they've done, because the public schools are still closed. Like, they're just now looking at the possibility of reopening in a limited way. So O'Hara, Bishop O'Hara School is light years ahead. I mean, <laughs> and uh, I'm so proud of them. They've done amazing work. Um, you know, everything is done just so professionally and so safely. Um, but it's, yeah, it's so, it's so essential to have the kids there in school and they're benefiting from it. The families are so grateful. The, the teachers are working hard and it's, it's just so encouraging and exciting for me to be part of this school because they're doing great things and it's, it's cool to just see other people taking notice of it. So yeah, good stuff going on here. Um, all right. Well, that's all I have to say really about myself. And since my time is short, let's jump over and talk a bit about our favorite author, J.R.R. Tolkien. If I take one more step, it'll be the farthest away from home I've ever been. yourself in next time and rid us of your stupidity. Uh, so I'm going to sit down here for a few minutes uh, here in the backyard so I can better read my notes here <laughs> that I wrote last night. Um, so Tolkien, let's see, before I jump into the Lord of the Rings, there's a couple quotes from his letters this week that I wanted to share with you. And uh, let me just pull up the first one here. He's been writing to his son, Christopher, uh, down in South Africa, and many of these letters are just such gems. You know, we, we're getting a lot from Tolkien about um, sort of his worldview, and I, I wouldn't say just his political uh, views, but yeah, his sort of his sort of cosmic or metaphysical <laughs> understanding of human human affairs, you know, and history. Um, so there's a wonderful quote that he has here. This is in letter 64, where he's talking to Christopher about, yeah, just um, kind of the state of the world and what lies behind it all. And uh, it's great. So this is what he says. He, they're talking about uh, the wastefulness of war, the utter stupid waste of war, he says, not only material, but moral and spiritual, is so staggering to those who have to endure it and always was, despite the poets, and always will be, despite the propagandists. Not, of course, that uh, it has not been and will be necessary to face it in an evil world, but so short is human memory and so evanescent are its generations that in only about thirty years there will be few or no people with that direct experience which alone goes really to the heart. The burnt hand, he says, teaches most about fire great lesson, which we also hear Gandalf <laughs> uh, giving to Pippin in this week's readings from the Two Towers. But more about that anon. Tolkien continues, I sometimes feel appalled at the thought of the sum total of human misery all over the world at the present moment. The millions parted, fretting, wasting in unprofitable days, quite apart from torture, pain, death, bereavement, injustice. 
If anguish were visible, almost the whole of this benighted planet would be enveloped in a dense dark vapor shrouded from the amazed vision of the heavens. And the products of it all will be mainly evil, historically considered. But, and this is the heart of it, but the historical version is, of course, not the only one. All things and deeds have a value in themselves apart from their causes and effects. No man can estimate what is really happening at the present sub specie eternitatis, under the species of eternity, or if you like, in the light of eternity. All we do know, he says, and that to a large extent by direct experience, is that evil labors with vast power and perpetual success in vain preparing always only the soil for unexpected good to sprout in. So it is in general, and so it is in our own lives. But there is still some hope that things may be better for us, even on the temporal plane, in the mercy of God. And though we need all our natural human courage and guts and all our religious faith to face the evil that may befall us, as it befalls others, if God wills, still we may pray and hope. I do. Fantastic. Really just encouraging words there from Tolkien. I love his point about um, just our limited capacity to see, you know. And there's this, there's this kind of double vision that we have to have. We have to really see and grapple with and not just um, in a Pollyannish way kind of pass over the reality of evil and human suffering and misery um, which is so dark and and if we allow ourselves to focus too much on that at the expense of the reality of God's grace and mercy it can be overwhelming it can be discouraging and lead to desolation and despair and so we see Tolkien grappling with that he takes it seriously but also he makes this necessary point that um, that's not the whole picture and there's more there's more than just the causes and effects and there's more than just the historical version of events that we see and that we can analyze, you know. Um, there, we never, I, I just love this one quote that he has, that we never, no man can estimate what is really happening at the present, sub specie eternitatis. That's no one but God really can say what is happening at the present. Um, we're living through it. We're living through it in, in, in the linear course of time. And... So we look back and we, and we can, you know, sort of point to the causes and effects and we can predict what's going to happen down the road. But, you know, um, we don't see the full picture. We don't have the capacity to see the whole tapestry that's being woven at any moment. God alone sees the whole picture. And he just points to his own experience. And I'm, I hope we've all experienced this too about how we see, you know, evil laboring away, apparently with great success, but ultimately in vain, because all of the labors of evil are just preparing the soil for unexpected good. That's the reason for our hope. I mean, we see it in the Gospels. We see it in the Passion. Hopefully, we all see it in our own lives. And it's just so good to be reminded of this, you know, especially now in this season of Lent. These readings from Tolkien are so timely. The other one that I want to share comes from Letter 70, which I just read. And uh, this is along the same vein. This is what Tolkien says. Um, Father C, that's uh, Father Douglas Carter, that was his parish priest in Oxford. Father C gave a pretty stirring little sermon <laughs> based on rogation days, next Monday through Wednesday, in which he suggested we were all a lot of untutored robots <laughs> for not saying grace. <laughs> and did not suggest but categorically pronounced Oxford to deserve to be wiped out with fire and blood in the wrath of God for the abominations and wickedness there perpetrated. I guess you could get away with a lot more in sermons in 1944 than today. <laughs> anyway, Tolkien says, we all woke up. Yeah, I bet. I'm afraid it is all too horribly true. But I wonder if it is specially true now. A small knowledge of history depresses one with the sense of the everlasting mass and weight of human iniquity. Old, old, dreary, endless, repeti endless repetitive, unchanging, incurable wickedness. All towns, all villages, all habitations of men sinks. And at the same time, one knows that there is always good 
much more hidden, much less clearly discerned, seldom breaking out into recognizable, visible beauties of word or deed or face, not even when, in fact, sanctity, far greater than the visible, advertised wickedness, is really there. But I fear that in the individual lives of all but a few, the balance is debit. We do so little that is positively good, even if we negatively avoid what is actively evil. Ah, uh, it must be terrible to be a priest. Wow, sobering thoughts there from Tolkien, huh? <laughs> and, uh, yeah, we, uh, well, what can we say except how right he is? All throughout human history, we see human nature hasn't changed. And he writes about the incurable wickedness of mankind. And yet also, where we see evil everywhere, and, you know, um, it, evil advertises itself. Evil is so visible. Good is often much more hidden. You have to search for it. But it's always there, too. Goodness is always there. Even sanctity, even sanctity is there, often hidden, um, just beneath the surface, you know. Uh, outshone by the neon lights of evil, and yet it perseveres, it perdures. His comment about most of our lives being more on the, on the debit side of the ledger than credit is, uh, yeah, I think just a typically, um, just a typically kind of Catholic, you know, uh, seriousness <laughs> with regard to man's real condition before God. Um, and that should breed in us not any kind of despair or depression or feeling that, you know, God's annoyed with us because we're not doing better. God knows our hearts, you know. Um, we hear in the gospel that the Lord doesn't need anyone to tell him about human nature because he knows it very well. He knows our hearts better than we do. He sees it all. And uh, the truth is he's not, he's not annoyed with us or he's not sort of holding out for us to... Uh, to do a better job, you know. The, the heart of the Lord for, for all of us is a heart of mercy, a heart on fire with mercy. And uh, yeah, and that, that we also need to have a double vision here, right? We need to have this Christian double vision where, yes, we take seriously, we see seriously the truth about our own sin and, and wickedness and our faults and failures. But in the same breath, in the, in the same vision, um, we also gaze upon the mercy and the goodness of God who begets in us all good works, you know, and who is transforming us slowly like the seed that grows over time. He's transforming us into his own glory and goodness, into his own likeness. So those two quotes from Tolkien were really meaningful for me this week. I hope that they are blessing you as well. And now, just for a brief uh, summary of where we are in Lord of the Rings, we are into book four now, the second, the second part of the Two Towers, which uh, we're finally getting to see what's happening with Frodo and Samwise on their way to Mordor. I think I can hear some, some of our parish school kids playing soccer or something on the other side of the fence here. <laughs> Don't know if you can hear it as well. So, uh, yeah, so Frodo, so Frodo and Samwise are on their way to Mordor, um, we saw at the very end of uh, book three, which I don't think I quite got to last Sunday, we saw how the Ents had risen up and assaulted Isengard. And they had, uh, they had completely flooded Saruman's fortress and basically made a mess of everything. <laughs> and the Fellowship was reunited. Pippin and Merry were reunited with Aragorn and Legolas and Gimli and Gandalf, all there at Isengard. And uh, they confront Saruman. Gandalf offers him a last chance at repentance, which he refuses. And then they ride off towards, uh, towards um, Minas Tirith, towards the fortress of Gondor, where they're going to reunite with, uh, with Denethor and with his people to kind of make ready for the final war with Sauron, which is brewing on the horizon. Then we skip over to Frodo and Sam, and we see how they are making their way um, through the perilous black wilderness uh, on their way to the gates of Mordor. They um, meet up with Gollum. They finally catch him. He's been following them all since, since Rivendell, you know, since way back in the Fellowship. He's been following their company. Finally, they catch him, and uh, Frodo gets him to make this promise 
uh, he makes him swear upon the precious, upon the ring, that he will lead them to the gates of Mordor. So with Gollum now as their guide, as their assistant, Gollum is, is such an interesting character because he's sort of, we can see this interior divide in him. Sam calls it uh, slinker and stinker. <laughs> There's Smeagol, you know, who's, uh, you know, kind of a shadow of who Gollum once was. And he's, uh, when, when that personality is dominant, you know, he's trying to be helpful and guide the hobbits. But then there's also, there's also his long habituated, uh, you know, uh, version of himself, which grew, uh, you know, deep under the roots of the Misty Mountains where he was gnawed at by the ring for countless long years. The ring exerts, exerts such a power on him. And so we see at one moment when he thinks the hobbits are both asleep, we see through Sam's eyes um, Gollum wrestling with himself out loud. He's having this argument with himself about uh, whether or not to betray the hobbits and try to steal the ring back. So there's uh, trouble brewing <laughs> on the horizon here. But so far Gollum is leading the hobbits uh, into Mordor. They get all the way to the Black Gates, which they find are utterly impassable. They're well guarded, well fortified. There's no way to sneak in. If they were to try to enter that way, they'd just be captured and taken to Sauron and tortured, and their journey would be at an end. But Gollum tells them about another way, a secret way, which uh, he discovered when he escaped from Mordor long ago. And uh, that way goes by the road of what is now called Minas Morgul. It was once the great Tower of the Moon, Minas Ithil, which the men of Gondor had built. But when Sauron returned to power, he conquered it. And now it is Minas Morgul, the Tower of um, something else. <laughs> tower of Darkness or something like that. And uh, there, is a, there is a secret way that goes through a hidden mountain pass where the hobbits uh, can go if Gollum will guide them. And he says, um, it's, uh, it's not a sure thing, that way is still guarded. And yet, uh, when Sam protests that, you know, it's, it's no better going this way than trying to go into the Black Gate, um, Gollum says, hobbits must see, must try to understand. He does not expect attack that way. His eye is all around, but it attends more to some places than to others. He can't see everything all at once, not yet. You see, he has conquered all the country west of the shadowy mountains down to the river, and he holds the bridges now. He thinks no one can come to the moon tower without fighting big battle at the bridges or getting lots of boats, which they cannot hide, and he will know about. And so what we're finding here, and the theme I wanted to address these chapters through this week, is the theme of pride. And of course, we all know the familiar old saying that pride goeth before fall. <laughs> well, uh, in The Lord of the Rings, I mean, what did we see with Saruman? What did we see with Saruman and the Ents? Gandalf says Saruman did not include the Ents in his calculations, and that was his downfall. He didn't consider that uh, these old, ancient beyond days, these peaceful sort of passive and, uh, you know, self-absorbed Ents, the shepherds of the trees, he never considered that they might have any effect upon his plans, upon his calculations. And he didn't factor them into his cunning uh, plans for domination, you know. Uh, but that was his downfall because ultimately the Ents were aroused by the orcs who come and chop down their trees. And the coming of the hobbits to Fangorn was like the pebbles that start a great avalanche. And when we see, you know, once the Ents got angry, <laughs> well, it was as if nature itself was rising up to assail Isengard and hardly a stone was left upon a stone. And so the great downfall of Saruman is that he he uh, didn't include the ends in his calculations, and I would submit that's because of his pride. 
we can see, you know, when he speaks to Gandalf, he's saying how uh, unseemly it is for a, a fellow wizard, one of the great ones, to show up at his door with these toe rags and hangers-on on his coattails, you know, hobbits and other lesser people. Even Theoden, the king of the Rohirrim, he refers to his people as stinking horse boys, you know. And uh, so we can see his, his proud sneering disdain for all others. And uh, certainly it never occurred to Saruman that creatures like ants could pose any danger to him. Well, because of his pride, uh, Isengard is torn down. And we see Saruman making the same kind of mistake. And uh, Gollum is going to lead the hobbits to try to exploit this. Because he, he thinks nothing can be any threat to Mordor, to his power, um, except for, you know, great armies and ships sailing up. He thinks in terms of great battles and in terms of, um, you know, military might, because th these, are, these are the terms in which he understands power. This is the power that he's amassing for himself. And even now, even now, he doesn't understand what the purpose of the fellowship has been all along. It's never entered Sauron's mind that perhaps they're planning to destroy the One Ring once and for all. That's inconceivable to him, at least up to this point. He imagines that the Fellowship is making for Minas Tirith so that they can use the Ring against him. And that's what he fears most of all. He thinks that, uh, you know, if the men of Gondor get a hold of the ring, why, why then, like Boromir wanted, they'll ride out against him in battle, they'll speak a word of command, they'll send his, his forces scattering, you know, they'll rout his orcs and the men of the south who fight for him, and they'll depose him and set up their own king upon his throne. But it's never occurred to him to consider that perhaps they want to tear down the throne entirely to tear down Mordor, like the Ents tore down Isengard, and not to set up a new king in his place. He thinks in terms of power and domination. He doesn't think in terms of freedom and liberation. And it, it has never occurred to him, he knows that there is a hobbit carrying the ring, but it's never occurred to him that one hobbit, or perhaps two, <laughs> could possibly breach the walls of his kingdom. He thinks that he, he doesn't imagine that the men of Gondor and the free races would possibly be so foolish or so bold as to send a single hobbit, or perhaps two, <laughs> to infiltrate his dominion. He thinks it'll have to come in the form of great armies, you know, a, a frontward attack. And so he's focusing all his energy on the Black Gates, and we see he's sending out armies, and he's preparing to make a preemptive strike. But because his attention is focused elsewhere, the hope is that the hobbits will slip in through the back door <laughs> while the great and the mighty are focused elsewhere. The small and the humble will slip in where the great uh, would be unable to go. And so there's a, certainly a lesson for us here in The Lord of the Rings. Um, and in fact, uh, part of the lesson, perhaps, we could we actually find in another one of Tolkien's letters. Um, this comes from letter 66, if I can pull it up here right quick. Here it is, yeah. This is another one to Christopher. And uh, he says, um, We are attempting to conquer Sauron with the ring. He's writing here about uh, the allied powers and the war against the Axis powers. We are attempting to conquer Sauron with the ring, and we shall, it seems, succeed. But the penalty is, as you well know, to breed new Saurons and slowly turn men and elves into orcs. Not that in real life things are as clear-cut as in a story, and we started out with a great many orcs on our side. <laughs> well, there you are a hobbit amongst the Urukai. Keep up your hobbitry in heart, and think that all stories feel like that when you are in them. You are inside a very great story. I love that. And we all are. <laughs> so there's a great lesson here. Um, we cannot conquer Sauron with the ring. I mean, perhaps we can, you know, in the sense of um, simply possibility. <laughs> it's, uh, we have the potential to do so. 
and yet it exacts a terrible penalty um, to, to attempt to conquer evil with evil using the tools of evil the penalty is that we ourselves are transformed into the likeness of evil and we will set up new Saurons to replace the one we overthrew so the way to defeat evil the way to conquer is the way of Christ it's the way of humility the way of suffering walking the low road and which leads to the you catastrophe right the apparent defeat which in fact uh, is the the final sowing the final preparation of the soil for an unexpected good to burst forth all right <laughs> thus ends my reflection for the day on J.R.R. Tolkien by the way I had the thought and I won't be doing this this year, but <laughs> I had the thought, maybe one day as a priest I might do this. It would be so fun to not only read The Lord of the Rings during Lent, which I've been doing for a few years, but to get, somehow give a daily reflection which ties in the gospel for the day with Tolkien. <laughs> I don't know, let me know if you think it's a good idea. Uh, something that just occurred to me the other day. Also, I wanted to let you know... Uh, this book I mentioned a few weeks ago, which is a new book from Word on Fire Academic. It's called Tolkien's Modern Reading, um, Middle Earth Beyond the Middle Ages, which I was very excited about. Wasn't sure how I could fit it into the schedule, because I didn't initially have it on the Tolkien 2021 uh, reading list. But I think what I will do is that, you know, after Easter, I'm going to go back to Shakespeare. There's four Shakespeare plays to read. I think I can probably also read uh, Tolkien's Modern Reading within the span of that month or so of just finishing up Shakespeare. And that way, when I do the podcast, I'll have a play to talk about, but I'll also have a little bit of Tolkien to throw in for you as well. <laughs> and the benefit for you all is if you're not reading Shakespeare, if you already finished the Shakespeare 2020 project, or if you didn't participate in that at all, then you'll have something to read during those weeks as well. So I'm going to put that up on the website inyourembrace.com slash Tolkien and if you wish to join you're very welcome that'll be from uh, about April 10th or so I think through the beginning of May so I'll be reading Shakespeare but also Tolkien's modern reading do not be afraid do not be afraid open your hearts open up your hearts to Christ the world is charged with all right, got just a few minutes left here to wrap up. I wanted to give you a few words, uh, a few more words about humility, just to conclude this podcast. So, from a theological perspective, what is humility? Um, if we just think about the word in its common usage, we might think it's kind of, um, you know, kind of a self-deprecating tendency, or kind of um, just, you know, not thinking very much of oneself. Um, we think of someone who's kind of meek. Not that meekness is a bad thing, but you think of, um, yeah, maybe kind of a lack of confidence, you know, goes along with humility. Well, the theological and the Christian understanding of humility is very far <laughs> from that kind of a picture of a person. St. Thomas Aquinas ranks humility as a part of the virtue of temperance, which is interesting to consider. So uh, there's the four cardinal virtues of um, prudence, temperance, fortitude, and justice. And the virtue of temperance principally has to do with the ability to control the passions. So uh, the temperate, the temperate man or the temperate woman is one who is not driven by the passions, is one who really, who really is uh, an exemplar of self-control, of self-mastery. If you have the habit of temperance, that means that whatever your passions might incline you to, um, you're not you're not immediately moved by them, you know. You certainly will still perhaps feel the inclination, <laughs> but reason is in control. Reason is the master. Um, think of the image from, I think, Plato, or was it Aristotle? I think Aristotle, actually, of um, reason as the charioteer and the passions as the horses, you know, which pull the chariot along. So if uh, you lack the virtue of temperance, well, then the horses aren't really in charge <laughs> and they're pulling the chariot wherever they want, which the chariot is like the whole human person. But if reason is in charge 
uh, then the, you know you can kind of harness the power of the passions to get where you want to go and you're not being just pulled along unwillingly so the way that reason controls the passions is through the virtue of temperance through the habit the good habit of temperance now he says humility is a part of temperance and so we think what's the passion that humility restrains and I think really in our tradition the answer is it's the passion of self-love um, amor propria as St. Catherine of Siena puts it, uh, self-love, which we have to qualify because what the tradition understands as self-love is not, it's not really love at all, you know. Authentic self-love is good and we must cultivate it. Um, as I'll talk more about that in a minute maybe. But the self-love, the amor propria, which the tradition talks about, is an unhealthy fixation upon the self and an exaltation of the self. Today in the daily mass of Saturday, we hear the gospel, the parable of the tax collector and the Pharisee who pray in the synagogue. And it's so interesting, St. Luke says, the Pharisee, standing apart, prays to himself, <laughs> saying, thank God that I'm not like other men. <laughs> he prays to himself. <laughs> and um, yeah, it's just striking to recognize that. He, he's not really talking to God. He's completely self-absorbed. He's like Narcissus, staring into the lake, uh, fixated upon his own reflection, transfixed by his own beauty. And that, that is the state of pride, which, as we know from Saruman and Sauron, will be our downfall. <laughs> so then what is humility? If humility is restraining amor propria, this unhealthy fixation upon the self, I love St. Teresa's definition the best. St. Teresa of Jesus says very simply, humility, la humildad es andar en la verdad. Humility is to walk in the truth. Humility is walking in the truth. And so humility basically has to do with living in the truth, <laughs> the truth about who we are. Um, now with all the virtues, there's the acquired part and the infused part. So what's the acquired part of the virtue of humility? Basically, it has to do with self-knowledge. If we want to be humble, we have to know ourselves, the good and the bad and the ugly. <laughs> and we have to accept ourselves as we are, not imagine ourselves to be something that we're not. You know, if um, the passion of amor propria, of self-love, is allowed to kind of reign unbridled in us, then what ends up happening is we build up a false image of ourselves. And we have kind of this false picture of, of what we're like and who we are. And it's this inflated ego. It's this, um, it's, yeah, it's this it's kind of a soap bubble version of ourselves, which is uh, pretty to look at and, and um, sort of consoling to think about, you know, but completely divorced from reality and very vulnerable to being pricked. <laughs> so when we fail when we fall um, or we don't live up to the image we have of ourselves then we can become instantly very discouraged that's why incidentally um, i think pride and discouragement are the two most serious temptations or uh, dangers that lie in wait for a serious christian disciple and I hope hopefully now from this sketch of humility, you can see how the two go together. You may think, well, pride and discouragement are not really related. <laughs> but the fact of the matter is, if we are proud and we kind of live in this false self, well, then the moment that we fail, the moment that we're confronted with the reality of our weakness and our, and our sinfulness, we're very apt to fall into discouragement and into despair because all of a sudden the false self is revealed and now we think, oh my gosh, the true version of myself is miserable, wretched, worthless. And we fall headlong into despair. The devil wants to keep us on that pendulum. <laughs> he wants to, if, we, if we can't be proud, he wants us to be despairing. And if he can't get us to be discouraged, he wants us to be proud. He wants us to live divorced from reality because only in reality can we meet God. So the virtue of humility, the virtue of humility, walking in the truth, puts us in touch with, first with the reality of who we are by way of self-knowledge. That's the acquired part. And then what's the infused part of humility? What's the God-given part? Well, I think the infused part of humility is, who am I in the eyes of God? Um, it's not just self-knowledge in the sense of what I can gain by examining myself and, you know, reckoning really with my habits, good and bad, and, uh, yeah, knowing my woundedness knowing my strengths and weaknesses and all of that. 
but it's something that has to be God-given, spoken by the Father, a word of, his ident- of our identity spoken over us by the Father as he speaks over Jesus at his baptism. This is my beloved Son. In him I am well pleased. Listen to him. So we need to receive that word from the Father. We need, we need to receive our identity from him. That is God-given. It's a gift which is infused. Um, but to receive it really increases in us this virtue of humility to a depth beyond what we can acquire by our own activity, as it is with all the virtues. You know, There's the part that we do, but there's the part also which God must do, which is supernatural, which is given and received, and which penetrates to greater depths than we can hope to reach on our own. So, humility, not self-deprecating, uh, is certainly not having a false vision of the self. You know, it's not kind of even putting on airs of like, oh, I'm, I'm, I'm so humble, I'm, I'm so poor, I'm so little, I can't do anything. No. <laughs> it's really living in the truth of who you are, and especially who you are in the eyes of God. And I'll leave you with this final thought. Only the humble person really loves themselves. And so the amor propria, which uh, inspires pride in us, is not true love at all. It's, um, it's narcissism. <laughs> it's, it's egotism. And it's based on nothing, and it brings about nothing good. But as we know, true love, um, the love of charity, well, it, it bears good fruit. It brings peace and, all, you know, all the, all the kind of, all, all the fruit, all the good fruits <laughs> the Lord promises, you know, come about from true love, from charity. And so, uh, St. Bernard of Clairvaux, he distinguishes four levels of growth in charity. And it's so interesting to recognize that for him, for St. Bernard, the very highest level of charity, of, of, of growth in charity, is to love oneself the way that God loves us. To love oneself with the very love of God, with divine charity. That's the goal. <laughs> and I don't mean to say it in any kind of ultimate or final way, like all of our Christian life is just meant to kind of get us to love ourselves. <laughs> it's, not, it's not this self-absorbed, inward-turning project. We're meant to love God and to love our neighbors. But along the way, as charity grows in us, and as we increase in humility, we find that we can at last come to love ourselves uh, in the truth, the way that God sees us and loves us. So friends, um, I have to wrap up now. I have to go inside and join this Zoom call. But I pray you have a wonderful Saturday or whatever day you're listening to this on. May God bless you, and uh, I hope that your Leitare Sunday is or was a day of great rejoicing and of being strengthened, and that you continue to run the course with joy as we journey on toward Easter. My friends, may Almighty God bless you, may He protect you from all evil, and may He bring you to everlasting life. Amen. Exultate, exultate, exultate,